0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again for our third Straight Conversation in our Asia series by Mr. John Wilson and Jody Bottom for a Kurosawa Conversation. Today we are talking about Stray Dog which came out in 1949 and is one of the earliest statements of Kurosawa on post-war Japan, and in this case the problem of law and order, the problem of honor in the new democratic regime, and the recovery of Japan after the catastrophe. First of all, gentlemen, thanks a lot for joining me. Please tell me, how did you run into the movie?
1: Well, I first saw it at the Kurosawa retrospective that I mentioned during our first conversation at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And they showed almost all of his films. There were a couple that they were not able to show, but that was, I believe, in 1981, certainly within a year of that in either direction. And I loved the film, and I saw it with a friend who had worked for a while as a film editor and was a dear movie-going friend. And when I got home, I told my wife, Wendy, about the movie. And I said, there's one scene in it that is one of my favorite scenes in all of Kurosawa's movies. And it was just a very brief scene. And when you and I get a chance to see it together, I think you'll know what scene it is. And it was years until we had a chance to see it together. But it was the scene in which the protagonist is visiting the home of Sato, the senior detective. And his family are there in the background, his wife, who's very friendly, and his children. And they've been talking about the case. And they go down this little hallway and look in A bedroom where there's a low padded mat on the floor and the children have all fallen asleep lying in different directions. In other words, they're not all lined up in the same direction. And they all look in and Sato says something like, like a field of pumpkins. That scene seems to me, even though it doesn't have any great burning significance in the movie, it is intended to show the subtle life and domesticity that contrasts with the agonizing life of the killer, who the protagonist feels a certain sympathy for, whereas Sato says, uh, when you have done this job long enough, you'll learn not to sympathize with these characters. But it just seems to me to express something that I love about Kurosawa, and I think very few directors would have included a scene like that. Many would have felt it was too sentimental, but that was one of the many aspects of his genius.
2: Yeah, I think I first saw it in the early 80s when the world was dominated by video stores. And you could, for the first time, for those of us who didn't have John's advantage living in Southern California or those who lived in New York, it was very difficult to study or even follow a director systematically. The video stores changed all of that took a while but the independent stores were often picking up a lot of these and this is when my wife and I watched the corpus of Hitchcock because you could do that and we started in on Kurosawa and watched everything that was available which is most of his films very early in the videotape revolution and they were dreadful prints i mean they were just <laughs> awful but <laughs> but you know for the first time you could get the sense of the career arc of a director in your own home or in small-town America. And this was just wonderful and a revelation. And I saw Stray Dog in the course of that. At the time, it did not impress me as much. Clearly, you know, a moment caught John. And this works in song. This works in many works of art. If a moment catches you, you're pulled down into the piece. And then, you know, the piece has a kind of weight in your mind that allows you to appreciate it. It's only later that I've come to think more of this film. I saw it at the time as a sort of transitional piece, moving him toward the films that we love from him. And I think when we talk about this film, Titus, you know, there are going to be some criticisms. It's not a perfect film, but it is an interesting film. It's in part a film noir, it's in part a doppelganger film akin to, say, Joseph Conrad's The Secret Sharer or Bartleby the Scrivener, maybe any of those doppelganger stories of high literature, as young detective and the young murderer are increasingly put in parallel throughout the film. Hence, just before the scene that John remembers, in which the older detective warns the young detective not to identify with the killer. Exactly. Uh, With the criminals. The reason that has to be in the film is because there's a danger of it, because the film is in part a doppelganger film. These are parallel characters. But, you know, I think, Titus, we may need to get the plot out in front of our listeners before we get into
0: the intricacies of it. Yes, indeed. We have a very simple, straightforward story, at the center of which is a gun. Toshiro Mifune plays a young detective, Murakami, who on his return from target practice at the firing range in the sweltering summer during a heat wave, is robbed on the bus. He loses his gun. He is shocked to discover it. He tries to run down a person who he thinks stole the gun, but nothing comes of it. This seems to threaten the end of his career. His first thought is shamefully to resign. This gives you a sense of the difference between Japan and, of course, America. The Japanese are a disarmed society. Weaponry and authority are highly connected. And so this beautiful, bold young man, who is throughout most of the movie dressed in a wonderful white linen suit, uh, looks like seersucker, has to go back to his old war uniform and infiltrate the underclass to maybe get a hint. Guns are so rare that a gun racket would make some noise and he maybe will be able to hear about this. And in this way, he might, after all, redeem himself it is not merely a matter of the job it is the fear of what that gun will do and indeed soon enough the ballistics reports confirm to him that the gun has been used in a crime and so it is only a matter of time until it will happen again and only the limit of bullets might put an end to what could turn into slaughter and this is the moral drama that leads to Mifune, first of all, to see the underclass and to see the city he lives in and the Japan of the post-war situation with new eyes. And of course, our chance to look at this world where under a certain degree of decorum or formality, something like this can happen, this sort of terrible crime. But this also puts him in contact with, as you said, Mr. Wilson, Detective Sato, played by Takashi Shimura, who we should say, Rosawa made some 30 movies. Shimura is in about 21 of them, and all of the ones we have covered in the Asia series, of course. His pairing with Toshiro Mifune is wonderful, and they've done it in so many different ways in so many different movies that we cannot go through it all. But I invite the audience to listen to our podcast again or to watch the movies again and see how wonderful they were together. And in this case, Shimura plays the older, wiser man who did not fight in the war, unlike Mifune who has been a cop for 25 years, has seen it all, known it all, is experienced without having become cynical. He has a strong commitment to the law and to justice, but at the same time, a very serious detachment from the very people he is supposed to be protecting, since he has seen too much, in a way. And, of course, we get a kind of suggestion about the difference between the army, since we see Mifune in his old army uniform, and the police the two together investigate the case and so the rookie mifune gets to learn the ropes and at the same time the difference in generations shows up and becomes thematic indeed in the scene you mentioned mr wilson when sato invites young murakami to spend the evening have dinner have a drink wait out the heat and perhaps have one moment in this whole story where he is surrounded by people he can trust and even admire in peace And then Act 3 starts when they chase down the murderer, they finally find out who it is, and the denouement is tense and bloody. Now, of course, there are many episodes along the way that we will get to, we'll keep them as surprises so far, but this should do by way of a brief synopsis. So gentlemen, then let's start with our introduction. There is the very strange and unique in Kurosawa scene of the firing range and the importance of the pistols there. You have this young cop who seems so incredibly confident, and who wouldn't be if he were Toshiro Mifune, of course, and an incredibly swift fall from that confidence into self-loathing. This is modern Japan. Well, Titus, I think he's also the reason to
2: open with that scene rather than, you know, the much more cinematographically interesting scene of the crowded bus that immediately follows it during which Toshiro Mufuni's character's gun is stolen by a pickpocket. That's by far the more interesting scene and that the faces are more interesting and Kurosawa obviously likes it better. But one of the reasons to start with the police firing range is not just narratively to set up that he's a cop, but also to signal one of the things that's going on in this fairly complicated mishmash of genres, which is that this is also, on top of everything else, a police procedural We see how the police do their job. We saw this when we talked about high and low, that in addition to this personal study of a wealthy man's fall because of a complicated kidnapping, much of the film was simply a police procedural. How do the police get something done? In this film too, which is much earlier, we're seeing police procedural elements. And so we get the opening scene of policemen at the firing range. It both indicates that they're not terribly familiar with guns. No American cop film would open this way with police not you know, being particularly aware of guns. And it sets up that how the police do what they do is going to be a theme and a development in this movie.
1: Yes, I would also like to step back to the very beginning that striking title sequence with the uh, panting dog, which is not only arresting, but ties in very much with the theme of the film. And on the one hand, you see the dog panting, and that sets the tone for this somewhat heavy-handed emphasis on the heat. Jody said at the very outset that this is a very interesting film, it's far from a perfect film, and one thing I absolutely loathe about the way people talk about films and books and so on is the idea that something has to be, quote, a masterpiece or great to be worth talking about, and this terrible inflation of the discourse. This film is... Quite less excellent in its details in many respects than the ones we've talked about earlier when Kurosawa had fully matured. But it's a very interesting film and one which I've never been sorry to see, even though, you know, I've probably seen it over the years a half dozen times and I've never regretted it. The very heavy emphasis on how hot it is and how everyone is feeling that and so on and so on. The opening sequence with the panning dog is a very artful way of showing that, but also the notion of a stray dog, which, of course, is alluded to later in the movie at several points. We have the expression a rabid dog, which is sometimes used metaphorically. And the notion is that if a person is acting that way, you're justified in killing them. They have put themselves outside the realm of the decently human, and you may just have to shoot them down. In a sense, not that Sato was a bloodthirsty character at all. He's not. He's a wonderful senior detective, as you said, and and very wise. And yet, to some extent, that's his attitude about the killer, Yusa. And Murakami doesn't feel that way himself. He doesn't at all feel that what the killer has done is okay or just too bad or something like that. And at the same time, he feels a degree of sympathy for him. So that opening sequence is really absolutely wonderful. And the way that he holds it, a little longer than you expect. It's not too long, but it's longer than you expect. I mean, there again, we see Kurosawa's touch. There are many things that I think if Kurosawa made the film, you know, some years later, he, he would have done differently. Like some of the sequences wouldn't have gone on so long. But the overall structure of it and the moral
0: conflict is masterful. Yes, I think you're right. We should indeed start with the title. A stray dog is already a suspicious creature, and we are told in a crucial scene that it just steps away from a mad dog, and then indeed you'd have to put him down. Mm-hmm. The dog is man's best friend. It's a spirited animal. It's a protector. The dog is always a useful metaphor for the police power. Or any political community, any regime has to exercise if people are going to feel safe. But it is indeed an inherently dangerous power. The dog can go mad. And it's such a useful metaphor for post-war Japan, where the manhood of the nation, the young men of the nation, were set out to do often horrifying things and were in turn massacred in a never-before-conceived-of way. Somehow the society has to be brought back together within the limits of a movie. It's it's a mix of genres, as you said, Mr. Bottom, but after all, it has to respect certain conventions. It cannot take on the whole burden of the nation's moral and political problems. But within the constraints of the movie, this metaphor of the stray dog, especially paired with the early sequences that show Toshiro Mifune go from high to low and then back again into his shining white suit, they show you the dangers, the unpredictability of this new situation. You don't know, in fact, how things will turn out, and it prepares us to suspect that even establishing the police force, even establishing a presumption of orderliness, of peaceable behavior, is much more difficult given the unique catastrophe of World War II.
2: Yeah, you know, there's a line of Samuel Johnson's that has the attitude that the older policeman takes, a famous line in which he says, encountering a murderous madman, he would shoot him down, and then in the great Johnsonian phrase, and pity him afterward. (laughs) Uh, And that's the view that the older detective insists on from the younger detective in some ways, you know, this is a pairing of the same set of actors who would play interestingly parallel characters in Drunken Angel, where the young man needs to be brought along by the older and wiser man. What's even more interesting is that Mufuni himself would play the older man in that kind of pairing in Redbeard. So that Kurosawa knows this pairing of the older, wiser man who has flaws, but nonetheless has a kind of wisdom about the world, and this younger man who needs to be taught. What's interesting here is that the police chief that he works under has a kind of wisdom. The guy who's running the pickpocket records bureau is an older man who has a kind of wisdom. And then this detective with a wonderful actor playing him has, again, this kind of older man's wisdom, all of which is quite strange, Kurosawa's relation to the older generation that forced the country into this disastrous war is very ambiguous. Now, we need to emphasize the fact that this film was made in 49 during the American military government, the occupation. We're coming toward the end of it. By 52, it's gone. But, you know, still things are getting censored by the Americans and the question of the American occupation, its relation to the problems of Japan are, you know, in the film without being explicit. There is, for instance, baseball. Now, baseball had been going on in Japan since at least 1929. There was an incident in which a local put-together team beat a group of foreigners, a club of non-Japanese people living in Japan. And it was boosted in all the newspapers in like 1929 as a propagandistic, you know, look, the Japanese can beat them even at their own game. But it led to a kind of explosion of baseball in Japan before the war. You'll often see references to the American occupation of Japan as being the introducer of baseball. But it isn't true. Baseball had been a national sport long before that. And in fact, in the 1930s, Babe Ruth and some other American all-star teams made a tour through Japan to enormous crowds playing these local Japanese teams. But in this film, baseball is supposed to give us a hint of Americanism. And the unstated thing is that, that over all of this scene, there is the American Occupation. We don't see American soldiers. We don't see American control. What we see is this world which is dissociated. Everyone's a stray dog, except for this handful of older, wiser Japanese men who are working for the police. And the young detective has to be brought along. He's made a mess of things, but the captain under whom he's working says to him, you've had bad luck. And bad luck either makes a man or breaks him. And that's what the test is. That's what this movie is. He's had his gun stolen. This is a career-ending possibility for him. He's kind of let off, put on half pay for three months for losing his gun. Morally, he's being ruined by it as the uses of the gun escalate from robbery to robbery with an injury. A woman on the street is shot in the elbow when being robbed to murder. All with his gun, there's this escalating use of his stolen gun, which is a moral indictment of him. And he feels it really strongly as he pursues finding his gun again. He, in fact, tries to resign and the police captain tears up his letter of resignation as a way of you know, saying, no, you've got to come to the end of this, either for good or for ill, either be made a man or be broken as a man. But I'm not going to let you resign. You have to come to the end of this. You know, that's one thrust of the movie. How does a young man who's a stray dog, he's a young war veteran, these final classes that were called up for the war were boys, in essence. They were 16-year-old, 17-year-old boys called up in the last classes and sent off to fight in Indochina and China and Korea and the islands. And then they come home stripped of everything. They don't get their combat pay because the government has fallen. They aren't allowed to keep their weapons because Japan has moved in this strongly pacifistic way with the government. And, of course, the American occupiers don't want them to have weapons. And so they're adrift. They are
0: stray dogs. Yeah, that's exactly right. We cannot forget that for all his allure and his fame— Toshiro Mifune here plays a young man who is indeed risking his sanity and his honor because he is part of a new Japan that is not well established in a situation in which he himself is not well established. We never see anything or hear anything by way of family or anything in his life that might give him stability. He, in fact, depends on these older men in the police and especially on Detective Sato played by Shimura for guidance, for steadiness, for authority. In a way, he has not gone beyond the situation of the army where you depend on your superiors for orders and hierarchical coherence. But it's not just that. It's that the world of the army and the world of the police are very, very different. The movie insists, and this should surprise viewers, that the police are incredibly correct. They never do anything underhanded. They do not brutalize. There's an incredible restraint that is required by the film in order to get this point across, that these dogs can be protected, they can be trained to grow up to be a good sheepdog at any rate. They need the stability that the older man can provide. They need their passions to be tempered by Habit, And by being knocked about by life for a while without coming to a bad end, they need to learn, as you suggested, Mr. Bottom, that you can become stronger in adversity, that this can come to a good end, however risky the proposition is, and that indeed there is only this way forward. There will have to be a new generation. There will have to be a new establishment of law at the basic level of living in a city without crime, without fear, without uh, misery and uh, mutual hatred or envy and resentment. So the only way is through much rides on the fate of this young man.
1: Yes, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that you both said and then take us in a different direction briefly. The baseball theme, we've talked about a little bit on other occasions, and it would be wonderful sometime to do a conversation on baseball and Japanese movies more broadly that would bring Ozu into it because, of course, there are many scenes in his movies that are set at baseball games, such as we saw in this Kurosawa film, but there are also many scenes. They're just brief. We see small boys playing baseball themselves, But what Jody said about the subtle treatment of the occupation, I think, was very perceptive. And you see that in a lot of films by directors with quite different personalities and styles from this period. Another example of it in this film would be the uh, scene in the dance hall where Harumi, the young girl, who was really young, I think she was only something like 16 years old, the actress, and she uh, has befriended Yusa, the killer, and is very ambivalent about that but a number of Japanese films from the immediate post-war period have a scene that is somewhat similar to that one in Stray Dog that will show a dance hall playing American music. There's a suggestion of a kind of weary decadence to it. The uh, young women are shuttled off and on in a very mechanical fashion. They twirl their beads in a kind of mechanical way. It's not explicitly tied in with the occupation, but there's the suggestion of that. The other direction I wanted to take us in just briefly has to do with Kurosawa's passion for uh, Seminon's novels and uh, the May novels in particular. And again, that was briefly mentioned in at least one, perhaps both our previous conversations. I'm a huge fan of the uh, Criterion Collection. I have a lot of Kurosawa's films in that form. It's wonderful that they're also available via streaming now. That's fantastic. But I love those, and I often find the essays that they include, along with the film and the interviews and so on, interesting. But the essay that accompanies a Stray Dog in the Criterion Collection by Terence Rafferty seemed to me very wrong in an instructive way. And so I just wanted to briefly read from his comments here, because this whole business of, Jody alluded to this in our previous conversation, I think that the theme of Kurosawa and genre often gets mishandled, and certainly something that comes up often in that context is the notion of Kurosawa's quite obvious affinity for various Western sources, including particularly the Magre novels. So what Rafferty says is, Kurosawa told Donald Ritchie, I wanted to make a film in the manner of Simonon, but I failed. Everyone likes the picture, but I don't. And then he mentions later that Kurosawa, when he was writing about the film in his memoirs much later, he seems to not be so harsh on it and perhaps changed his view and Rafferty himself rates it very highly. In fact, he was one of the people I was thinking of when I said I'm weary of people banding about the word masterpiece, because he describes it as Kurosawa's first masterpiece, which is absurd. But in any case, he says, Kurosawa was right, in a way, about his failure to imitate Semenon. Stray Dog isn't as tidy or compact as a Megre novel, but for the best possible reason. It's the work of a more generous and more complex artist. Kurosawa's film has a richness, an abundant and almost unruly curiosity about the extremes of human behavior that the French writer's slender, shapely books never demonstrated. Well, all I can say, having read that, is that either Terence Rafferty has never actually read a Maigret novel, or he's a complete idiot, because the very qualities that he attributes to Kurosawa those are the very qualities that have drawn literally millions of readers to the Megre novels. And it tells us something about Kurosawa, that he was so attracted to these, abundant and almost unruly curiosity about the extremes of human behavior. You actually see that more in Megre than you do in Kurosawa, but it's certainly something. The generosity, you know, that's a wonderful word to use for Kurosawa, but also for Seminon and the Megre books. They're not tidy. I have no idea what he means by that. So one of the things that that distinguishes the Megui books is the sheer range of material that Simon got into them. So, for instance, he will have this conversation between Megre and his wife, just a classic domestic conversation that is brief, affectionate, and then he will be with a couple of his cronies having one of his endless drinks. I mean, he drinks enough in one day that you'd think he'd be completely out of commission for a month afterwards, you know. And then at the same time, he may be doing something as eccentric as taking the role of someone who just needs a room, renting a room across from a place that he suspects something is going on behind the doors that he wants to observe. All of that is in one book, which is not typical of the genre at all. So I think rather than fuss about the extent to which Kurosawa succeeded in making a seminal, we should say that the two artists, different of course in other ways, at the core they had a great deal in common. And I think that shows up not only in this film, but in others which have absolutely nothing to do with the mystery
0: or noir conventions. Mr. Wilson, it's quite possible that the critic has no idea of he's speaking because Georges Simnon was Belgian, not French. Right, true, yes. <laughs> yeah, I wanted
2: to pick up on that dance hall scene that John mentioned where we first find the young woman that the murderer thinks of as his girlfriend, although she's much more ambiguous about this. It's a very strange scene. John pointed out how decadent that sort of scene is these are women in skimpy clothing doing western style dance hall routines and john picked up the lethargy of it the kayodatsu condition that was used to describe all of young people in post-war japan and i think every young character in this movie is peculiar the young man who finally tells the young detective where he can get a gun We encounter him throwing rocks into a fountain to splash the undercover detective. And it's a very peculiar encounter. The young woman he thinks is the right place to get a gun is running an arcade show where you shoot at little targets while she's eating a slice of melon and spitting the seeds out. And she, too, is a very peculiar character who thinks he's talking about her selling herself to him for prostitution purposes and only becomes frightened when it turns out he's trying to get a gun from her. We encounter these peculiar characters over and over again, some of them like the pickpocket, some of them are older, but every young character in this movie is peculiar and adrift. And in that dance hall scene, there's not just the decadent lethargy that John described. The dance that the girls are doing is objectively ugly. The way they move their hands, the way they move their hips and their legs, it isn't just decadent sexuality like you'd see in, you know, Weimar, Germany, is some very ugly, bad imitation of the West. And then the women all drop upstairs during the interview with the dancer, the girlfriend, We keep getting interrupted by this bevy of young women running up and down the stairs in a very peculiar scene. And Harumi herself collapses on the ground and begins to cry. And there's sort of nothing more they can do with her right then. It's all very odd. But I want to oppose her dancing there, which is in Bad Imitation of the West, You know, which she knows something. Somehow is bad with her dancing in a later scene when the young detective is at her house. They're trying to get her to reveal where the murderer is. And she does finally break down and her mother's nabbing at her. And it's a very uncomfortable scene. Harumi finally does reveal that the murderer has given her a beautiful dress. She takes it out, and it's a Western-style princess dress, and she puts it on and begins to dance, twirling and twirling so that the skirt shows her legs up to her pelvis through the kind of screen of a slip you can see the v of her legs and she's swirling faster and faster crying how beautiful she is and it is and the young detective is just you know the flashes to his face just shows how freaked out he is how at sea and lost in this scene and the mother finally grabs her and slaps her and she collapses and tears off the dress and it's all a very odd scene but it is again an imitation of the west It's a Western dress, it's a kind of public sexuality that Japanese culture had been opposed to before the war. You know, they didn't have a concept of dating, they didn't like holding hands or kissing in public. Their relation to sexuality was entirely different she's got this vision of what it would be to be beautiful in this Western way. And Titus, she gets that ideal just as wrong as they got the sexy, strutting woman ideal wrong in the dance club. Decadent sexuality and a kind of beautiful young woman flowering into sexual power. Both of these are Western ideals in the presentation of the movie. And the young woman is a stray dog. She gets them wrong. She doesn't, you know, really come under the power of her mother. She's lost just the way every young character in this film is lost because the Western ideals aren't, they don't know how to do them. So they're not going to save them from this lethargy.
0: Yeah, that is a very good point. The difference of generations in the movie is stark. And every couple of minutes, you meet another one of these young characters. And every time you wonder, what the hell is wrong? And of course, as soon as you remember the war, you can tell what the hell is wrong. These are all survivors, but they're separated by this generational gap because some of them kept more or less their ideas of how to live. Indeed, the young chorus girl Harumi is slapped around by her mother, shamed into behaving with propriety eventually after her outburst. There again, you see the difference between the old and the young between conventional propriety and this craziness. It's very understandable what happened to the young generation in Japan, but it has driven them mad. This girl says she saw the dresses in shop windows and she wanted something beautiful. She wanted something rare for once in her life. And this guy got it for her. And so what if he is a thief? What does that matter? Indeed, if there was a regime premised on being a gang of thieves, the Japanese regime that waged World War II, just like the Nazis, is a prime candidate. The notion that anyone will moralize with these young people is, of course, somewhat difficult to stomach. But somehow authority must be imposed. This scene with the girl behaving miserably to these two police officers, one of them far her elder, again shows how restrained the policemen are. They have to sit down, shut up, and put up with her. Her mother might impose authority. She has no father. Perhaps he died in the war. But they can't do anything about it. There is such a thing as public and private, and in their incursions in the private world of Japan, these police officers are there primarily to bear the humiliations of Japanese authority for the catastrophe that they have undergone. They can never say something or do something constantly. Rumors or gossip or offhanded remarks get them in trouble and indeed eventually get the older detective shot. But there's nothing they can do about it. That shows part of the subtlety of the movie. There's gotta be a distinction between private and public if we're going to have justice. You cannot simply enter into every home, enter into every intention or secret of the heart. But you have to deal with these things at some point because the establishment of the law depends on things that are themselves pre-political and private rather than public, which show up as you so astutely pointed out in the conflict between the generations. And so it is one thing gun turns out to reveal so much about Japanese society that you wouldn't even have suspected, much less connected it to the problem of the plot. And of course, the gun is the ultimate symbol of American power. It is a Colt, 25 caliber vest pocket model. This is the small gun, you know, it's a two-inch barrel, supposed to be worn inside without necessarily breaking the line of your clothing, of course. That is what is at the core of this story. This authority to fire will have to be used, and the young cannot be trusted, it turns out. Or certainly not those of them who have not accepted public authority, who have not accepted this limit on their own passions, the misery they have suffered, the injustices that have been done them. Indeed, their whole future was mortgaged and wiped out. And nevertheless, there is a higher principle than justice, it would seem, because they are not going to get justice. They have to learn a kind of discipline like our protagonist learns. And it seems indeed especially he has to bear the burden of this new catastrophic Japan to see this girl break down. To see his similarity with the murderer, who is also, it turns out, a veteran to roam around the underclass part of town, as you said, hoping to pick up tips, hoping to get into this gun racket, and in that way, besmirch his honor. He has to be willing to lie with the law. He has to be humiliated by following up this old woman pickpocket. (laughs) He has to bear all this if he's going to have the same moral attitude and the same skills as these older detectives whom he admires and who see him through this process.
1: Yes, that's very well said. The end of the movie that shows Murakami and Yusa rolling around in the high grass is, again, a little too long. I don't think if he had made the film 10 years later, he would have trusted the point to be made. But the way that they're rolling around entwined is really a beautiful image for how I think Kurosawa wants us to see it, as opposed to how, I mean, Sato is very wise, he's a wonderful character, and yet he is still too harsh in his judgment of these people like Yusa and others who have gone off the rails. Kurosawa, just like Megre, doesn't want to let them off the hook, but he also feels a deep sympathy with them, and that sympathy is proven not to be just a result of inexperience, And not to be a kind of softness, but to be something essential to moving forward, as you were just so well saying.
2: You know, for all that we're looking at this lost generation, there was something that was possible for Kurosawa under the American occupation that he could make this kind of film. I mean, MacArthur's rule in Japan was interestingly less heavy-handed than what was imposed on Germany for instance. Now, there's censorship. The military government, the occupying government, not only censored things, they censored mentions of censorship (laughs) uh, as a way of, you know, sort of pretending. Kurosawa's film had to pass the censors. You know, we can read baseball. I do, in fact, as a subtle reference to the American authority. But another thing to think of is Kurosawa didn't have to go through a denazification process. He wasn't put through the kind of things intellectuals and artists were put through in Germany, even though he had made at least two propaganda films. The Most Beautiful and the second of those judo films, the sequel to Shinjiro Sugata, was straightforward nationalism, hooray Japan. And The Most Beautiful was actually a commissioned propaganda film you know, for the warmongering imperial military. And yet Kurosawa is not forced to make amends for that. He's not put through the parallel to a denazification process. He's actually allowed to go ahead and make films. That's a really interesting thing. Now we can talk about Kurosawa's subtle resistance to the world before the war and during the war. But still, he did work for the imperial militaristic government, and he's allowed to create films from 46 to 52, which is the period of the American occupation, that are essentially critical of the situation of Japan. This film, in particular, the older generation is taken as the wiser generation. Now, of course, this is the older generation who didn't go to war, who staffed the police, you know, and there's a way in which we can say the good Japanese of the older generation. But, you know, the causes of the war are left unaddressed in this film and really not even considered. It's just the war. And it's produced this whole generation of lost young people. That's the problem of Japan. John has mentioned a couple times the indulgence. I think this is my word, not yours, John. Kurosawa has in these scenes that go on too long. There's the opening sequence of the dog panting, which fills the entire credits. It's over a minute long. The rolling around in the flowers and the tall grass and the climactic scene, with cutaways to look at butterflies, cutaways to hear a woman playing Bach on the piano, and cutaways to a group of Japanese school children singing a nursery rhyme as they walk along. My word for that is indulgent. He indulges talented filmmaking. And so to say, look what I can do, look at this, that in his more mature films, and the films that I would actually call masterpieces, they're much tighter. He doesn't indulge that. Oh, there was another one I wanted to mention that I've never seen anybody mention before. The older and younger detective are on a train, and the camera cuts away to shoot through the window the tracks moving off into the distance, and it goes on and on. And on, and then it cuts back to them talking, and then it cuts back to the tracks again. It goes on and on. You know, the older Kurosawa would have trimmed that a lot. But the most famous indulgence in this film is the eight minute sequence of faces from the actual poor, the markets, and the underlife of the city, filmed by Kurosawa's assistant surreptitiously. None of these people knew they were in a movie. None of their permits allowed them to do this. He just went in, the assistant director, who would go on to direct the Godzilla films, just went in and shot a few hours of film. And then they edited it down to an astonishing eight-minute sequence of one face after another. These are fascinating faces, interesting faces. It's a really powerful scene. It's also very indulgent to just throw that in the movie
1: there. Yes, uh, Beautifully said on both counts.
0: Yes, I agree, we should tell our audience, this is a movie I love, not least of all because you do get to see so much of Japan, which I am fascinated by, ever since I was a child reading samurai stories, so this works great for me, but we've been presenting this as a movie about this gun, these characters, these scenes, the urgency of crimes, and we might give people the sense that this is more or less the piece of a film noir, but it's actually, as you suggested, Mr. Bottom, two full hours of movie making credit to credit. He is taking his sweet time because Kurosawa has this lyrical tendency. If these people are going to fight in the grass, you're going to see what they're fighting for: the beautiful and the hopeful future of the country. It's very lyrical. Or at the beginning, indeed, you have this wonderful suggestion. Crime emerges as invisible. You know, he's a cop, and somebody steals his gun. That is the epitome of shamelessness, right? Stealing from a cop. But you can't tell who did it. We all watched that bus shot. It's brought back in recollection later, but you know who did it. Crime is invisible, so then you go to where the criminals are, and that allows Kurosawa not just to separate crime from normal life by forcing the cop to become invisible among the criminals, whereas the criminal had been invisible with the cop and among ordinary people before, but it allows us to see what the stakes are again at the beginning. There is this side of Japan, which how could you put that on film? Especially, as we said, in conditions of reconstruction, of the national pride of the occupation... And yet he was allowed to get away with all this stuff, which is amazing in itself.
2: Yes. You know, I think we're distinguishing the mature Kurosawa from the kind of indulgent one here. We can see a lot of signs of his indulgence that would become, I don't know quite what the word, touchstones. Things that Kurosawa would always do. He would just do them a little less obviously later on, like the lyricism that you're describing. Yeah. Uh, One thing, for instance, is his heavy-handedness. John used that word. His heavy-handedness about symbolism, particularly with music. We've talked about the opening credits, which are projected over a dog panting, and how long that goes on. The camera never moves off the dog panting. It just goes on and on and on. The moment that that actually becomes unbearable is when the dog is panting in time with the music. <laughs> it picks up the drum beat with the dog's <laughs> panting. Kurosawa always had this kind of heavy-handedness about the symbolism of music. When Harumi collapses to the floor and starts crying, a scene paralleled, by the way, with the widower whose wife has been murdered collapsing and crying. But when she's crying there, she's crying in time and echoing the saxophone playing. That kind of heavy-handedness, especially about music, we'll see that in Kurosawa again and again. But, you know, in this relatively early film, it's just, he's not even trying to cut it short or hide it. He's heavy-handed about symbolism. We talked about this when we talked about high and low. At the end, the clock ticking and ringing and having a price tag on it. Or people saying, I feel caged in as they back into corners. He always had this heavy-handed symbolism. But in his mature films, he would be much more elegant about it. The worst moment of heavy-handed symbolism in this film comes when the older detective and the younger detective are outside talking. The storm clouds are gathering. Eventually, we're going to get a rain that will break the heat that's run all through this movie. They're talking, and the Mafuni character says, I have the feeling something worse is going to happen. And then there's thunder in the clouds. <laughs> that heavy-handedness. Kurosawa will always have that. But in this film, you know, he's not trying to hide it, or he's not embarrassed by it. He's not smoothing the edges of it off. And so we get it again and again.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. The mode of the movie is earnestness. I think that makes both for the indulgence and for the heavy-handedness, the obviousness of the symbolism. It all either has to be accepted or rejected, and it's hard. Sometimes in the movie, when I shouldn't be, I confess, I start laughing. And my wife did too, so we look at it from a certain distance. 1949 was a rather different period, and you can understand the earnestness, because it does fit thematically, as we said, with the fact that the cops never do bad things here. They're never brutal, they're never dishonorable, they're always on the up and up. We'd call them Boy Scouts. That makes requirements on making. It's a very good movie, but it's certainly not a masterpiece. And my own favorite bit of symbolism in the movie is the baseball game. Baseball has this unique quality that the defense has control of the ball. And as we see the baseball game, the tension of pitcher and batter of the defense springing a trap on the batter, we see the cops. They have somebody call out a warning over the PA system to have a guy come over, cops want to talk to him, and at the same time they know that he will run for it. And the whole tension is about chasing him down and making sure that they've got him surrounded as you would with a runner between bases, and then you gotta tag him. All of that is just so obvious, but you don't think of police work and baseball as parallel, but Kurosawa thinks that way. It's a very nice thing to notice.
2: Very nice. You know, other elements of Kurosawa's filmmaking are present or developing in this film that will come to maturity. There's a scene, for instance, very early on of the young detective walking in the dust, which actually makes no sense because it's a city scene. But Kurosawa sticks it in because it's so beautiful to film. And what you see is what he's going to be fascinated by in later movies, which is the movement of dust in the air the way it swirls. We'll see, for instance, what's going to become a Kurosawa trademark, motion in the background. And we're going to see rain outside of windows in Kurosawa. We're going to see dust moving behind characters in Kurosawa. Seven Samurai, we're going to see flags waving behind characters. He liked to get motion, often constrained motion, so that the only motion is seen through a window, for instance. But he loved to get motion in the background. And in this movie, we're going to start to see that with moving bead curtains, with that first image of dust that's going to become a Kurosawa trademark. We're going to see as well the kind of overprojection that Kurosawa will do. For instance, in that long scene through the strange undercurrent of the city, he's going to film the sun through a moving camera looking through a bamboo screen. So we're going to get the flashing sun as he does that. And then he's going to overproject it with Toshirô Mifune's shadow. He's going to give us the street scenes overprojected on Toshirô Mifune's eyes. We're going to get these elements. They're in novo here. They're in the egg, but they're going to, you know, hatch into Kurosawa's trademark cinematographic techniques.
1: What you say reminds me of his autobiography, and I was rereading this section where he talked about this film in particular, but it was so interesting, I ended up reading a lot more. And one thing that comes up a lot when he's describing the movies is the theme of chance. In other words, he's meticulous, and we talked about this particularly in High and Low, he's meticulous at planning to get certain effects and going to a great deal of work. And Jody just talked earlier about the compressed footage that was really documentary-like footage, which was so great, that showed these wonderful montage of faces. So he meticulously planned, and at the same time, it happens that you bring people together together, the actors, filmmakers, all of that is always going to have a degree of unpredictability. And he often will emphasize that. So, for instance, he talks about the young woman, the actress who played Harumi and how she was quite temperamental and difficult to work with most of the time. And it's so interesting because you can see that in her character, the way she played the character and how just near the end of the film, she was really getting to enjoy it. But the film was over, you know, and it's just a little throwaway remark. But he makes those comments quite often. Many times it will have to do with an actor like he talks about in his section on making high and low. He talks about the actor who was playing the killer in High and Low, the nihilistic young man. And that's something that I think was, again, part of his genius was he had a strong instinct along with the planning and maybe it had something deeper to do. He doesn't usually tie it in explicitly with what you might call his worldview, but it might have something to do with that. On the one hand, uh, meticulous planning. On the other hand, acceptance of the randomness of life and using that as part of the finished product.
2: I think that's brilliantly observed, John. And there are directors who are good at that. I think Francis Ford Coppola, for instance, is a genius who used the fact that Al Pacino was fairly callow as an actor and maturing as an actor over the course of filming The Godfather. He used that as his character. The main actor, Martin Sheen, who has a heart attack in Apocalypse Now, and he uses the two different acting styles, pre-heart attack and post-heart attack, to divide the film. And he uses this kind of happenstance to help the story along and the filmmaking he wants to do. And Kurosawa, I really like the idea that that's one of the things he's doing, that he can accept in a way that, say, D.W. Griffith never could, that meticulous planning isn't enough. That stuff happens, and you have to be able to incorporate that. And I think that's wonderful. It can be hard on the actors. Charlton Heston tells this story of filming one of his biblical epics. There's a scene where he's coming down the stairs to confront someone who doesn't know he's there, and he's kind of creeping down the stairs, looking as beautiful as he ever had. And the director keeps refilming it, saying, let's try that again, let's try that again, let's try that again. And Charlton Heston finally blows up and shouts, what are you doing? And the director says, well, the first time you did it, you brushed a piece of clay, broken shard with your foot. And I was hoping you'd do it again. And Charlton Heston blew up and said, you want me to do it? I'll do it. Just tell me. But the director wanted this happenstantial feel to it. (laughs) But Kurosawa seems to do both, both this meticulous planning and this incorporating of the random and the peculiar that is always going to happen when you have a group of people put together. I mean, football general managers know this. No matter how hard you try, one of your players is going to get in trouble with the police. You know that stuff is going to happen. And to be wise about these group endeavors of the human is to be able to use that as part of what you're doing. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really glad to hear your analysis there. It does strike me, though, something we barely talked about that maybe is hard for us to fit into any frame like that. The peculiar element of this film in which the killer is not shown on screen until the end. We have a major character who actually does a little bit of an over-the-top, chewing-the-scenery performance at the end, but still, you know, quite good. But we never see him until the end of the film. That's clearly a deliberate choice on Kurosawa's part, but I just can't decide why he did it and how much it adds to the doppelganger features of this film.
0: Yeah, that is a very good point. The fact that the young man is always on Toshiro Mifune's mind is very important. And you hear of him, of his exploits. You see the leftovers, a girl who got shot, a family who got murdered but you never see him. He's supposed to exercise this dangerous power over the action of the movie, over your own expectations, over your own emotions, but a lot of that depends on being the, the primary audience for the movie having that peculiar sense of propriety, as it's a bit flat. Maybe it would be flamboyant to have to show Mifune imagine this doppelganger of his that might be a tap on the romantic side, on the side of individualism, so to speak but it would have been much more helpful. There is a nice touch in the storytelling that you only see the young man after you learn that he was a veteran, that he was robbed on his way home, and that, crucially, Toshiro Mifune had once been in the same situation. If anybody was a victim of the war without being involved morally on the culpable side, it would be these young men who are therefore chosen as the right fulcrum for the movie. You return home defeated to your country, destroyed, and the first thing that happens is you get robbed by your own country. That is enough to send this young man over. It doesn't turn evil overnight. You hear this dramatic story of his gradual falling apart. He tried to live with his sister's family in this little shack to have some kind of stability, just like we see in parallel to Shiromi Fune spend an evening with the family of the lead detective Sato but he was crushed morally, and he gradually let these dark passions take over him that we gradually hear about and only see him after he has transformed into a mad dog that has to be put down. Yeah, I think that's right. I
1: I would answer your question, Jody, by saying that, as both of you have well emphasized, the killer user represents a whole group of people. When we actually finally see him, he looks terrified, he's very physically unimpressive, He's a striking contrast, for instance, to the killer in uh, High and Low, who was handsome, self-possessed, a nihilist. And there's a contrast, which I think I could be wrong, was deliberate on Kurosawa's part, between the image of this killer. You know, we're not seeing him. We're just seeing the escalating level of the crimes and this stray dog who has become a mad dog. And then when we finally see him at the end, uh, he's just such a pitiful figure. I think that that was intentional, whether it was fully successful or not, probably depends on your point of view. But I think it's consistent with the overall design. That is, I think it's a calculated decision rather than just a simple mistake.
2: Yeah, he clearly chose to do the reveal in this way. But, say, in Joseph Conrad's short story, The Secret Sharer, we get the stowaway hiding in a ship captain's quarters. And the question gradually emerges of whether he exists at all, uh, whether (laughs) this is all happening in the captain's mind, because no one else ever sees him. Also, certainly in The Secret Sharer and maybe in, say, Bartleby the Scrivener, there's a subtext of a kind of unacknowledged same-sex attraction. And I'm not sure whether that's going on in this movie, when they finally encounter each other. They do have shockingly similar suits on. And sexuality in this film is very odd. From Harumi's dancing, and in an old expression, the young detectives not knowing where to put his eyes while she's dancing in this Western dress down to the person who leads them from Yusa to Harumi is this clerk at a hotel who's very peculiar. In any other context, I would say he's stylistically campily gay, but they keep describing him as chasing women and they describe him as being bullied in the army. And the older detective actually. Titus has said several times that the police are not violent, the police are not forceful here. The one time the older policeman actually threatens anyone is in that scene where the clerk makes some final remark and the older detective storms back in and, you know, just makes him retreat up against the wall. It's the one physically forceful moment from the older detective. And it clearly has something to do with the older detective's disgust with the sexuality of this hotel clerk. The sexuality in this film is very odd. It would be very typical in a doppelganger piece of art to hint at some kind of same-sex attraction here. And I'm not sure what's going on in that last scene as they're rolling through the grass in each other's arms. It's very subtle if it's there at all. But, you know, they are very sensual in that last scene. But you're right, the criminal, John, is unimpressive as a war veteran. I mean, he panics and fires off his last two bullets to hit a tree. For a war veteran, we would expect some more familiarity with firearms, some greater coolness under fire. You know, he's not an impressive character, but he's been built up that way because of his escalation and the role he's playing in Toshiro Mifune's
0: mind. Yeah, I agree. This is a very interesting character, played by Isao Kimura, who played the lead detective, so handsome and competent and professional in High and Low, the first of the movies we discussed. He was also the young, incredibly idealistic samurai in Seven Samurai, Katsushiro. A role like that is what, in this case, Toshiro Mifune is playing the young, idealistic cop. He is a doppelganger. It is the case that we even hear. The only time to Mifune, he doesn't contradict, but in a playful manner over drinks when they are almost equal or at any rate comparable in conversation, the only time he talks back to the lead detective, he explains that he himself was in the position, the young now murderer once was, as a robbed veteran, as a disillusioned young Japanese man, crushed he tries to explain that this was his problem too, that he feels about it in a way that the older man cannot and won't even try to understand. He shrugs it off with a French phrase. It's gotta be après guerre, post-war syndrome. They can laugh about it, but obviously it's personal for Rosawa, and perhaps you could say that in the logic of poetry, post hoc ergo what follows after follows from. The old man gets shot because he was contemptuous and didn't want to understand this young crazy guy who, in a moment of surprise, unpredictably, happens upon him as he's making a call and guns him down, although the old man does survive. This leaves Toshirō Mifune alone to confront the young man, to confront this other side of himself. The rage and the impotence he must have felt as the young man destroyed and country destroyed and then alone robbed without a future. He did the smart thing, went into the police. Mm. There you will get order, stability, hierarchy. If there is a part of justice that requires honor but does not depend on politics, that would be law enforcement. Even in a tyranny, you can imagine a city that's fairly well-run, where people don't rob each other or murder each other or what have you. This is why there's a kind of ground to say that these old policemen are honorable. Yes, they served a horrifying regime, but on the other hand, what choice did they have? There was nothing for them to do, but what they did do kept the civil peace, kept, to what extent was possible, some semblance of morality, of public order. That's what Mifune signed up for, but here you do see this other side of him, brought out of him against his will as it were in confession because of his mounting guilt at the crimes this young man has committed, with which he identifies too much. The older guys do repeatedly tell him, calm down, it's not such a big deal, do your job. Stop with the melodrama of <laughs> resigning. What are you waiting here for, cat in hand? Get to work. It's half pay for three months and you've been punished and that's it. You don't have to have a whole drama about it. But of course he has to have a whole drama about it. Not just because we need the movie, but because he as a character has been in this situation. And indeed there is something pitiable or at least contemptible about this criminal who is so much like him and they wear the same white suit except that he's muddy, dirty, and ragged. Typically his darker half think it's the guns. You don't have to be a manly man to shoot a gun. And you can get a gun and even kill people without even knowing how to use it. Indeed, as you suggested, Mr. Bottom, we're talking about the last people to have been desperately commissioned into the Imperial Japanese Army or Navy who have no training to speak of. We're not talking about the ruthless, incredibly professional murderers of the 30s or early 40s. This is the last desperate gasp sacrificing more young men for madness, for sheer nihilism and he embodies that, he would never shake that off, like our protagonist did. There's this strange combination of pity and fear, because he is dangerous, a man with a gun is dangerous, and Shunfun has to be willing to take a bullet, which he indeed does. That does lead to this confrontation. There is something very weird about it. Now, since the movie stole from the point of view of honorable behavior and law enforcement, it is inevitable that eroticism looks askew, especially without the legal form of marriage. Outside of the old detective, we don't see anybody married in this movie. Well, actually, we do see the sister of the killer. So another very conventional setting. Of course, eroticism will look very askew from this perspective, but it is somehow weirder in this case because it's a kind of self-love and self-loathing. Toshiro Mifune has to overcome himself, has to fight a side of himself that he thought he had left behind when he came back from the war, but obviously the events brought this self-loathing out of him. And threatened to destroy his own life. And here it is both physically and morally, leading him into combat to risk his life and to redeem himself as a man. Perhaps the concluding mark of the movie that, although you'd expect death, he doesn't kill them.
2: Titus, I really like this. I think here we get to a bone with some real meat on it that's worth thinking about. We can take this to say, for all that the older generation of policemen have a kind of admirable, worldly wisdom. Well, one of the themes of this movie is, even for a boy desperate for a father, he's throwing himself at one father figure after another, like home for a bunny, saying, Are you my father? Are you my father? He's desperate for a father. In a way, we, you don't see outside of a Dickens novel, or a Kipling, I guess. These men are admirable fathers in their way. And yet one of the things that's revealed here is their worldly wisdom and detachment is not enough. Because this younger generation has a kind of sensitivity that they don't perceive. In fact, the old detective Sato warns him not to identify with this other character. But it is the truth That they are identifiable, that they are doppelgangers in some way. Doppelgangers who broke in different directions, absolutely. And in furtherance of your point, Titus, I think I would look to the fact that there are only two pieces of handwritten text in this film. One is Toshiro Mifune's letter of resignation. The other is this very strange, rambling stream of consciousness recording from the murderer that they find in the sister's house. And those are the only two pieces of handwritten text that the camera actually focuses on. And because Kurosawa in this film can't help but, you know, slap us upside the head with points Mm. like this, we actually get an extra unnecessary scene of the old... Older detective having to interrupt the younger detective who's taken it outside to read again, just so we know that this is a serious thing this stream of consciousness confession is about how it's raining and how disgusted with himself the murderer feels. This is all pre-murdering. And how there's a cat crying in the rain and he kills the cat so the cat won't suffer anymore. But then he says, I am a coward. And it shows a peculiar and unpleasant but very precise level of sensitivity. And that, of course, is exactly what's revealed in the letter of resignation. This is why the captain tears it up. In essence, he's saying you're being oversensitive. You know, you should learn from this. You got punished. Now we should just move on. You shouldn't feel as though somehow your very psyche has been implicated in this. But what the young men know is that their psyches are implicated. Their sensitivity is something that the older men lack for all their detached wisdom and fatherliness.
0: That's very well said. Yes, you're right that in a way these parallels are hitting you over the head, but I confess I missed that one about the writing. Very well observed, sir. These characters have an interiority that they are trying to exteriorize through writing. Their private secrets are supposed to come out. The other characters are in that way, it's these young people who have their drama to reveal, their secrets to reveal, especially the failures of their lives. And that suggests uh, was aware that there's no going back. The older generation of Japanese men simply will not understand, they cannot understand, because they do not have the same habits. And the difference in the habits is so great, even if you maintain all the old conventions... If you can pass on from old policeman to young policemen or from mother to daughter or what have you, there will be a massive change. The unquestioning confidence that you would have had before has been wiped out. Gradually, one assumes Japan would have to be rebuilt on a different basis. You may safeguard peaceableness on law enforcement, but that will say nothing about other things like the basics of putting two together, marriage, children, all these things. The society will be vastly different and say that there is this point that because of the specific choices, young soldiers who hadn't really fought, just defeated old policemen who had never been involved in the war, or the madness of Japan in that time, but were indeed trying to keep the madness limited if possible under law. They have a kind of closeness. There's a point of near contact between them. But indeed, in that evening that they spent together, the old and young cop. So Shiro has to leave at some point and go on with his business, trying to find this killer. It's obviously the case that he cannot share the life of the older man, and he cannot even rest in this attempt to become friends in a personal way. It's a failure. These worlds are, in fact, separate. That's a beautiful way to end. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. We started with High and Low, where we see both business and police, and then we went the Bad Sleep Well, where we see only business. And here we end with Stray Dog, where we see only the police. And so we have completed a kind of trilogy on Kurosawa. Thank you very much for joining me. And I hope our audience will be persuaded to watch these movies. There's always TCM and the Criterion channel. Public services people, get to know them and get with these movies on canopy or in other services which are often free. They are wonderful insights into the transformation of Japanese society and beautiful pieces of film. Thanks for having us, Titus. I've enjoyed all three
1: of our conversations. Not that we have to rank them, but this was my favorite of all three. I
0: really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks much. Well, I'm glad we're living on a high note and so we're done we might find some other subjects of conversation in the future. All the best gentlemen. Bye bye.